This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, ForeFlight comes out with some new features. And a self-serve fueling snafu, temporarily, grounded some pilots. Also, the aircraft delivery numbers are out for the first quarter, and they are painful. But on the other hand, some aircraft manufacturers came out with new models. And finally, we look at some new electric tech and the biggest airplane yet. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today, Ian? Let's do some Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, really cool guy that you caught up with, cool assignment, actually. This is a National Guard captain. His name is Nick Sand. And uh, you, you tell us his nickname and his, his call sign, what that's all about. Right on. So, uh, yeah, we caught up with A-10 Warthog pilot for the Maryland Air National Guard. Nick handle is Rock Sand. Because <laughs> all, all military pilots have a handle. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, he tells us a little bit about uh, how he got this handle. I don't want to spoil it for folks. But he's a great guy. He's also a general aviation pilot. He likes aerobatics. And he's a commercial jet aircraft pilot as well. So very interesting individual. Okay, cool. So we'll hear from him later on. Let's start with ForeFlight. Now, I know you're a ForeFlight guy, ForeFlight user, so maybe you can help us dig into this a little bit. But, you know, they're always doing updates. I mean, this is in a way, uh, what do they call it in the biz, like a, you know, dog bites man story. But this one is pretty cool because I think people have been frustrated for a long time between the differences between the tablet version of ForeFlight and the iPhone version of ForeFlight. Yeah, I use both versions, Ian. Actually, I've been using ForeFlight for a pretty good while. I like it. And, uh, I like the way it integrates into my flying. It was a little tricky to do your flight plans on an iPhone. The screen just didn't represent the same thing uh, that the that the iPad version did. Or I actually use an iPad Mini, but now there are they are very similar. Uh, the functionality is very similar. The look and feel is real similar. 
and their real estate on a screen has been managed better. So for pilots, and you know, when you're bumping along sometimes, it's a real hassle to uh, to change a waypoint, put a new one in, check the weather at an airport. Uh, if you, you know, if you're hooked up to your ADS-B, it'll you know, give you a lot of that info. So I think that this is pretty interesting. The other thing they did in was linked up with FlightAware to get some traffic information, which will help you more on the ground right before you get into the cockpit and go, right before you fire up your ADSB uh, receivers, if you have one, if you're flying in that type of rural airspace. Honestly, I was wondering what, you know, why it would be a benefit to have traffic on the ground before you get going. But, you know, at a busy airport, if you're um, doing the run-up and everything, it gives you a little bit better, bigger picture. So uh, those are a couple of the key highlights. That's true. And and actually, they, they made some good points in this and, you know, with the quotes that you included in the story, which is that especially like I can th- as a student, right, you've got a lot of anxiety maybe around like which runway are they using? How's the traffic flow? That sort of thing. Maybe it's an airport you haven't been to yet and you want to kind of like anticipate how it works. You can go on there and if there's people flying, obviously, you can see that traffic moving, see which direction they're heading, you know, how the flow works. That's really cool. If, you know, maybe you've been rusty for a long time, you want to get back into it. You don't want to fly when it's really busy. You can look and see like, man, the pattern's totally flooded. I'm not going to mess with this today. You know, you go to quieter time. So there's all kinds of like little nifty tricks I think you can use it for. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. You know, it does put a lot of people at ease. It gives you a little bit more awareness. And as I always have said, a little bit more awareness is better in the long run. Uh, so it's a little bit smoother, but for pilots using for flight, I strongly suggest taking a look at the video that they have, the tutorial, because that really helps you because some of the, you know, new, uh, updates are a little tricky to find. So it'll help you out. It'll just, it'll make it a lot smoother transition, but, uh, give it a look and check it out. Okay, cool. And actually real quick before we leave the story, there's a couple of like nuggets in there that I were kind of towards the end that is the most, I think, definitive information I've seen yet on traffic. So of course, uh, FlightAware, as we know, it's like they monitor, they're monitoring all the traffic all the time. And uh, especially with their ADSB network that they have out now. And uh, Daniel Baker, who's, who's the head, said that GA flying, which I think he's defining as sort of non-business, so non-jet, non-commercial, dropped by 20% at the height of the coronavirus, which I was surprised. I actually thought it would have been more. And I know Tyson from ForeFlight was saying that their IFR files through the app are at the same point now that they were last year. So I think that's great news. That's interesting, Ian. I'm glad you brought that back up because, you know, if you compare that to corporate and commercial flying, that dropped like 70%. Yeah, well, it's dropped more than that, but it's up back up to 70% now. Yep. Yep, that's a good point. So that's great. It sounds like people are flying. And of course, if you're flying, you need fuel, right? And this is a really kind of bizarre story that came out that uh, you and some friends tracked down in the past couple of days, which is that self-serve pumps, which a lot of us rely on both to get maybe a better deal at airports with full service fueling, or of course, a lot of these country airports, that's all they have. It's one company, I guess, that has a number of these outlets throughout the country, and and they were down in the last week. That is correct, Ian. So Paul Harrop, AOPA Live video producer, uh, wrote a really cool travel story where he went from Frederick to the New Jersey coast, and he was going to self-serve, you know, fill up with self-serve on the way back. Uh, and he noticed that the pump was down. So um, I went ahead and made some phone calls, and indeed, it looks like that we had about 800 locations that suffered from a, a network outage. These are the devices that most pods will be familiar with. They're a tall, slender device called a QT pod 
but uh, petroleum on demand self-serve aviation fuel kiosk now if you say it real fast it's cutie pod uh cutie pod i just uh. figured that out while i was writing this story <laughs> but you know the serious side of the, of the of this issue is that if you're flying along and you're at night you're in a rural airport and you land and the network is down it can't function it can't they can't process your credit card transaction. Uh, yeah. so therefore, the machine doesn't work. Therefore, you will not get fuel. Yeah, you're stuck. So that started on May 29th. Now, before we move on, I know you've got a personal story to share maybe on this, but Matt Duncan, the general manager, emailed me this morning uh, before we did the Hangar Talk podcast that things are back up as of yesterday afternoon. That was June 3rd, and it affected 800 of the devices over a span of about 1,600 Airports now look. They also service airports around the world, not just in the U.S. and marine outlets. So if you're a boater, chances are you might have been affected by your self-serve boating fuel as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, these things. Of course, that's obviously you know goes without saying a, a reason to check notams. But you know, they can the outages can happen in the middle of the night or on a weekend or something when maybe the manager is not working. A notam will never get issued. So you might land and find there's no fuel. And yeah, you. I hadn't told you a story yet, but I, I was saying this has happened to me before. It, it, it wasn't a self-serve pump. It was back in the days, you know, before apps. And I was looking at, I think, the chart supplement, you know, and the green book. and Which was called the AFD back then. That's right, yeah. yeah we, hey, we had a hangar talk program talking about that one time. <laughs> that's right. Um, I was flying a Cub, a J3 Cub. And uh, so in the Cub, you get about two hours. And it's like at the end of the two hours, you better be on the ground somewhere looking for fuel. And so I was, you know, and when you're only going 60 miles an hour, it's like, you know, you, you don't get a lot of options. Right. So I landed expecting to have fuel because they said they had fuel, no fuel to be found. So now you're faced with this decision. It's like you're, you know, you're far from home. Do you push your luck and take off and go somewhere else? Do you, you know, have somebody else fly you in some fuel? Or probably what I should have done I was a low-time pilot. Thinking back, what I should have done was probably just have somebody drive me to the gas station in town, picked up a little auto fuel, and dumped it in there. I will say that is not what I did, but I had a happy <laughs> ending. So it was all good in the end. I learned a lot from that experience. But this happens, and you got to think, you know, it's something to prepare for. It's another reason not to push your fuel, you know, to the limit, I suppose, is you might land and not be able to find any. Yeah, and this is a network issue. So by a network, we're talking about an IT network, a server yeah. issue. But if you can't process the money, you can't sell the gas. Uh, there, there was a way to manually do it. If you happen to land it at an airport that had a human interface that knew how to work the machine, but a lot of these cutie pods are at rural airports, and there's no one there. And as you mentioned about notams, Ian, even if you check it, uh, notams, there are there's you know some airports that are kind of not well populated, attended, yeah. or whatever, yeah. and you wouldn't know about it. Yep, so, exactly uh, right. so you do have to be real careful about that, even with notums. So, <laughs> so keep, keep that in mind, but they're back up and running now. And, uh, we appreciate, uh, Matt Duncan for, for emailing and following up and giving us the 411 on that. Okay, great. Hey, let's move on to the gamma numbers, the, uh, you know, the manufacturing deliveries and orders for the first quarter. They've just been issued. And of course, you know, something big happened during this past first quarter. Uh, and we we're all kind of anxious to see what happened with the delivery numbers. And and systematically, let's talk about it across all the manufacturers. The picture is not pretty. It started out strong. And if you recall, at the beginning of the year, we had a high host for general aviation with a lot of training models that had hit the market in, in the past uh, year or so. And uh, but that collided with the coronavirus scare. And uh, unfortunately, 
it really led to a severe decline. So 219 piston airplanes were delivered. That was a decline of almost 12% compared to 2019. But we're looking at, you know, more severe drops in the turboprop market. And also we keep talking about helicopters too. You know, things were down in both of those two segments. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the worst one was turboprops. And they've been going down a lot lately. And I don't know if that's due more to, you know, cheaper light jets on the market, you know, cheaper fuel, that sort of thing or what. But um, they declined almost 42%, which is massive. And so we got into the report a little bit and you find some really interesting things. The first of which is that that most of the turboprop decline was brought solely by Textron. Yeah, you and I uh, crunched some figures on that, Ian, and we came up with some real interesting results. And the King Airline, uh, the, uh, there were 23 aircraft delivered last year versus 11 in a similar uh, quarter this year. Yeah. And, uh, and also in the Grand Caravan model, we added those up. There's two different models, the 675 and the EX. So mm-hmm. five aircraft were, were delivered this quarter versus 21 last year. So that's 25% of it, or a drop of 75%. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hugely significant. So they're they're very exposed in that segment. And the caravan I thought was interesting. I mean, that that might have something to do with people waiting for the Denali's or, you know, I don't know what. But oh, yeah, it could be. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and of course a lot of the King Air deliveries are, are driven at least the 350s by government orders. So they they probably will have a steady stream there in the future. But safe to say, you know, between all the turboprops and the jets, not a good quarter for Textron overall. There were some surprises though. Cirrus we were surprised to, to discover, actually increased their deliveries. Sold, uh, I'm, I'm say sold. They delivered 85 units versus 80 last year. This is across the whole line, Ian. And one thing that you and I both are interested in is the new track airplane, the SR-20, that's specifically designed for the training market. Now, now they don't break that out in the regular SR-20 line, but they did sell eight of the SR-20s versus the more faster you know, bigger engine, SR-22, SR-22T, and 18 of the jets. Yep, which is good. That's an increase. That shows that, and obviously, what, what you're showing there is that individuals are still picking up their airplanes, still buying their airplanes. Yeah, which good point. I think would jive with what we've seen in the used market. So, yeah, in addition to to Diamond, which, you know, has has started cruising last year, we talk a lot about Piper and, and loving to see their resurgence. Um, they had a really strong quarter, first quarter last year, 58 airplanes overall, this year, eh, not so much. This year, they uh, delivered uh, 25, Ian, and 18 of those were the Archer 3 model. But listen, don't forget, and we ri- we've written about this at AOPA, that they dedicated part of their production line to making personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, you know, for the, the face shields. We joked about it a little bit, but that it would be kind of cool to have a, a Piper-made you know, face shield for a hospital worker. But they did take a handful of employees off the line for that. But they did, in fact, even, you know, with the line still going, they dropped about half of their deliveries uh, versus the same period last year. Yeah. And of course, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They were having issues with folks being able to actually pick up the airplanes. You know, their international orders. People couldn't get to the States to be able to pick them up. So maybe a factor there as well. Finally, one that we talk about kind of on and off, but is a big player kind of under the radar is is Technum. First quarter last year, they delivered 51, I think. And 42 during the first quarter of this period. And leading the hunt is the uh, P2008JC with 14 delivered. But, you know, Technum is, a, they're kind of a, a quieter company. We don't hear about them quite so much. 
But they did bust on the scene with a really interesting new model, uh, which will probably affect future, you know, uh, gamma numbers. Yeah, absolutely. So not registered there, but coming out real soon. Yeah, they did surprise us all with the P2010 TDI, which of course means the diesel. Coming out with a diesel version of their really cool, sleek four-seater, Jet A powered if you want. It uses the Continental CD170. So it's a 170 horsepower engine, and that's where you get the designation from. And this aircraft... You know, it's it, it's able to uh, extend the range out to a thousand and fifty nautical that's miles. Crazy. This is yeah, and that's crazy. Com- compared to about six hundred and sixty miles, uh, six hundred and sixty nautical miles rather on the Lycoming powered IO three sixty or IO three ninety variants of which they will sell all three. So you know, a, a, an owner will have a choice of three different power plants for that model. Yeah, so you know, you're talking about fuel savings. I think you know the burn numbers are more like. In the fives, five point two, five point two gallons per hour. It's like a, like the Cessna Aerobat I fly is about five point two gallons yeah. per hour. That's awesome. Yeah, but of course you're going to pay a premium because um, those diesel engines are more expensive. So you know one of the uh, one of the issues with that is what is the trade off and can you make your money back? And flight schools often can. And of course in Europe you're talking about the ability to get av gas. And so. We'll see. I, I think that might be a, a nice seller for them and certainly shows them as a new tech kind of company, which is which they are. It does. Let's just let our listeners know about the price. Uh, I'll go in euros first, 375,000 <laughs> euros since it is a European model, but it's 412 grand US. And, uh, and that compares to 345,000 uh, for the P210 when we wrote about it in 2015. So a big price premium for that Continental engine, which is a, uh, it basically, it's not a TBO engine, it's a to-be-replaced engine. All right. So the yep. engine will be replaced after uh, 1,200 hours, but uh, they do expect that to increase dramatically. So uh, Continental's working with Technum on that, and, and they both have their fingers crossed that it actually go much further than that before the replacement. So yeah, we want to finish off today talking about another piece of new tech, and this is electric. We've mentioned this kind of on and off, and this this was a really cool, I think, event and, and one that we're really excited about. And that is that um, MagniX, which um, you know has flown the Beaver in the past, has now flown a Grand Caravan all electric. Super cool. Yeah, they had a, a short flight, a 28-minute sortie, if you would, just a few days ago. And that is a really large airplane. It flew over Moses Lake, Washington. But, you know, the, the range is reduced. But the whole point is that you can get you know clients to and from in and out of some of these islands where you're not really going that far in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you're talking about a 750 horsepower motor, which is, uh, you know, that that's a beast. Like we said, all electric. Now they're talking about, oh, they can start making passenger flights, you know, like in the next year, that sort of thing. And it was interesting because a local news report threw a little bit of cold water on that by saying it's like, well, the cabin at this point is so jam packed full of batteries that you don't have any room for passengers. That's so, a good point. Yeah, it sounds like uh, some development left to go there. Well, you know, the, the issue is, you know, your power to weight and the weight of the batteries, and that's a big problem. And now, uh, don't forget that Harbor Air also flew a battery-powered Beaver, you know, just before the end of last year. And so, uh, so the technology is out there, and uh, they are working hard with Magni-X 
Uh, and, uh, you know, this will be a really neat project, you know, to see that come to fruition. Yeah, I agree. Can't wait to see a that. Grand so, Caravan electrically powered. Wow. Yeah, that would be super cool. Hey, so from a new piece of tech to an old dog, and that's the A-10, really jealous of your experience that you guys got to have over there at the National Guard over at Martin State. And I thought you had a great conversation with uh, with Captain Sand, we should call him, talking about really flying the A-10 from a GA pilot's perspective, which I think is one that we don't often get. Yeah, let's uh let's pay attention to a couple of minutes with uh with Rockstar Captain Nick Roxanne of the Maryland Air National Guard. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Maryland Air National Guard, Captain Nick Rock Sand. Hey, Nick, before we get going too far, give me the details on your nickname. Uh, so the appropriate story, the brief story, without going into too much detail, is kind of a play off my last name, Sand. So Rock Sand, kind of like the, the song. Can you sing it? Uh, I won't try. I won't try. <laughs> I'll spare you. We're here with you today at Martin State Airport. And first of all, we want to appreciate your service as part of the Air National Guard of Maryland. And before we talk about this beautiful super decathlon that's right behind you, tell us a little bit more about what you do with the Maryland Air National Guard. Yeah, so right now, I'm a part-timer at the Maryland Air National Guard. I fly the A-10 Warthog uh, out here at Martin State Airport in Middle River. What do you like the best about the A-10? Uh, so the A-10 Thunderbolt II, the Warthog, it's more commonly known as the close air support platform. We fly close air support, combat search and rescue. Uh, we do a lot of other mission sets like anti-maritime and other kind of type roles, primarily an air-to-ground platform. That's kind of where we excel. Uh, A-10 is a fantastic aircraft. Most of the A-10s that we have in our fleet rolled off the assembly line in 1978, 1979 from Hagerstown, Maryland. So a lot of them were flown from the factory over here to Martin State. The aircraft handles incredibly well. Uh, it's two GE-34 engines, uh, which are found on some civilian transport category aircraft as well. And it's big, thick, straight wing. It's you know, kind of like the Super Decathlon here. It just you know, it's very stable, uh, very easy to fly aircraft. The difficult part about it is employing it. Everybody says it's really easy to fly, but it's difficult to employ. Uh, so that when you get into the the tactical regime of weapons delivery, running formations, being on the radio, you know, in a very large force environment, uh, gets to be quite task saturating. And so that, uh, that's where the difficult to employ part comes in. Now, when you're not flying the Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt II, also known as the Warthog, you are a commercial aviator. You're a jetliner pilot. What type of jet do you usually fly when you're carrying civilians around? So as a part-timer at the Maryland Guard, my responsibility is six, I got to get six sorties a month. So that's six days out of the month, I'll be uh, at the Guard flying the A-10. But full-time, I'm a captain at Air Wisconsin Airlines flying the CRJ-200. Right now, I'm out of Chicago O'Hare. Uh, so that's the, that's the full-time, full-time gig, and then the Guard is kind of part-time. So it gets to be a little bit tricky balance, trying to manage a tactical air-to-ground close air support uh, platform and then kind of balance that with you know the, the airline environment which all you know in and of its own way is, is very dynamic uh, as well you know you're flying in and out of Chicago O'Hare or Washington Dulles some of the busier airports 
in America. So, so it's it's uh, I'm pretty fortunate in that aspect to be able to get to do two very unique, different things, kind of in their own right. And we we're chatting earlier about some of the similarities and differences between the A10 Warthog and the commercial jetliner. Tell me a little bit more about the similar jet engine that powers both aircraft. Yeah. So the the TF34 or the CF34 uh, engine is on both is on the CRJ and the, and the A10. Obviously, the A10 is kind of modified and utilized a little differently. We have thrust reversers uh, on the CRJ, uh, so it kind of makes for a, a little bit platform. But like the ironic thing is, everybody is like, "Oh yeah, it's you know the same engine. That should be easy, right?" Well, it, the irony is like the military version, the civilian versions. All the numbers are like one or two percent off, or a few hundred psi, or you know, or whatever off. So just a few more numbers to memorize the difference, but. Because it has the same engine, you get a lot of the similar, uh, like max takeoff weights, approach speeds, and stuff like that. You know, kind of driven from the power plant. So you have like a generally similar, like kind of weight profile uh, and airspeed that you operate in. The airframes are two completely different things. The A10, uh, big, thick, straight wing. Like I said, 11 hard points, so it's got a lot of drag. Anytime you're, you know, 11 spots where you can put on, you know, a bomb, a rocket, a missile, or a targeting pod. That's a lot of drag, and so after you add up all that, they and then in comparison, you have the CRJ, very slick, very sleek. You know, you're cruising high and fast. You know, kind of loaded in that uh, kind of a, just a lot more of a sleek profile with the swept wing, very different handling characteristics. Especially, you know, the biggest thing, uh, kind of like low to the ground. You know, in cruise, you know, an airplane, you know, up, down, left, right is pretty straightforward, but down low, the handling characteristics very different very pronounced at the swept wing on the CRJ versus big, thick, straight wing on the A-10. Now, we caught up with Nick Rock Sand over at your hangar when we were visiting Martin State Airport, and you were sitting on the wheel, basically sitting on the, the nook between uh, the wing and the wheel and the aircraft fuselage of that Super Decathlon. Tell me a little bit more about the aerobatic American champion Super Decathlon that you love to fly when you're not flying with the Air National Guard or with the airline that you fly for? Yeah, so the Super Decathlon, or the Super D, this is a 1992 American champion uh, aircraft. It came off the assembly line when they first started production with the aluminum wings. It's 180 horsepower, constant speed prop, and it's a joy to fly. Again, kind of that big, thick, straight wing, so it's a symmetrical airfoil, uh, and so that has you know a few different uh, aspects of kind of how it handles a little bit, but it does a lot of things very well. What are some of the handling characteristics of the Super Decathlon, Nick? Yeah, so it flies very well. Symmetrical airfoil, uh, it's a little bit different than kind of like, you know, your Skyhawk or kind of the, the cambered airfoil, what is found a little more commonly on other GA airplanes, but does a great job in the, the aerobatic role. It's a little bit more of an e intermediate kind of platform. It's, you know, definitely a step or two below the, the extra category, the extras or the pits that you might see out there. But just for a easy flying, kind of a step up, maybe above, you know, like your Champ or something that's got a little less power. Uh, so you have a little more power for the aerobatics, and then it does just a little bit better job in kind of the aerobatic regime. So I'm going to guess that you enjoy doing some aerobatics from time to time in the Super Decathlon. I sure do. Tell me a little bit more about your favorite aerobatic maneuvers and how you can accomplish something like that in that kind of airplane. So the Decathlon is very stable airframe. So with the wing and the tail setup, it's very, it's actually pretty stable and not quite spin resistant, but it, it the aircraft doesn't, she doesn't like to spin, so you have to kind of work to get her to spin, but that's one of the more fun maneuvers. You got to input and maintain your control input, but once you start spinning, she'll wrap up 
and it's just a ton of fun. But what about wingovers and loops and things like that? Yeah, so it, she'll handle everything from, you know, your kind of your your more bait, your wingovers, your chandelles, everything. It's just a smooth, pretty stable platform for that. If you want to step it up into loops, clover leaves, cubanates, um, she'll do those just fine too. Uh, you got to manage, you know, it's 180 horse, and it's just kind of like that right power and weight combination where you still have to manage your energy. You have to be very conscientious about that. So maintaining your energy over the top of a loop, managing your G, power, and airspeed uh, on kind of some of your vertical maneuvers, whereas like the extreme decathlon, American champion rolled out a couple of years ago, you get a little bit more power to play with. So in the super, it's, it's a great, great energy management platform. So it kind of makes you work, uh, think about it. Now, one cool thing about your personal aviation background is that you're able to combine three separate modes of aviation into one really cool passion. You've got general aviation, you've got commercial aviation, and you've got military aviation. But tell me, Nick, how you got started in general aviation and what your background is in general aviation, basically how you got started. Yeah, so my start in general aviation started at a small airport in Iowa. Uh, I learned at a Part 61 school, Bart's Flying Service, back in Storm Lake. I got my private pilot's license when I was in high school, and then it kind of snowballed from there. So your aviation background really started when you were in high school, and you worked your way up, kind of the hard way, the old school way, uh, starting in some cornfields of, uh, of Iowa. So uh, Captain Nick Roxanne, tell me a little bit about how you started out as a high schooler and how you made some money, you know, some part-time money that you used and you used to apply that money to your aviation training. Yeah, so in the summertime, I would, my mornings were detasseling corn um, walking about 13 to 15 miles a day under the hot sun doing that and then in the afternoons I would split over to the airport uh, the same flight school they ran a crop duster outfit aerial application service and so I would run over to the airport in the afternoon and then work late until sundown refueling reloading chemicals and fuel in the spray planes uh, for them to go do their their afternoon runs. So how did you get your initial tail dragger experience? Was it during that time in the cornfields or just when? Uh, so actually, no. So my initial tail dragger experience came later in college. Uh, so I earned my private rating in high school, and then I went to a flight school at South Dakota State University, a 141 aviation program up there. Uh, I went through the rest of my ratings, started to instruct, instructed there for about two and a half years. And then it was there that I was first introduced to the decathlon. Uh, the school had leased a, it was a 1970 super decathlon. I got my initial table training in that. Uh, and then it wasn't too much later, I was able to get, uh, get hands on this girl. So. I don't mean to get you upset now with the blast from the past, but you went to South Dakota? South Dakota State. Okay, South Dakota State. Jackrabbits. But you've got an airplane here that ends in the registration call sign ND, November Delta. Now I'm guessing that stands for North Dakota some kind of way. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so just down, just down the road, smaller flight school down in South Dakota. You know, it wasn't quite the, as big of an outfit, but it was a lot more, you know, a little bit more affordable on the price point, but then also just, it was a great group of instructors. I still talk to some of the guys that I instructed with and flew with uh, in college. So it's been, you know, kind of the, I grew up in a small town, smaller university, and so, you know, you kind of keep those friendships with you. Well, how far away is uh, South Dakota State from the University of North Dakota? I mean, it's got to be pretty close once you're in the Dakotas, right? Uh, probably about three, three and a half hours, probably about three hours. Did your group of flying uh, folks ever intermix with the uh, North Dakotans or what? No, not really. 
geographics more than anything. Well, how did you find this beautiful red and white airplane? I love the design on the underside of the wings, by the way. Uh, so found it, uh, found it online, um, went up and took a look at it. Uh, my instructor at the time, very experienced tailwheel pilot, uh, senior pilot at the flight school, and he took me under his wing. We went up and take a look at the airplane, did a pre-buy inspection with one of the mechanics at the field and got the sign off and uh, we flew it home that winter. It was a very cold flight back from North Dakota. Uh, but it was it was awesome. It was a fun fun trip. And speaking of awesome, tell us how other folks could follow in your awesome footsteps. You know, sort of how could they get started in aviation? Um, you know, or do what you did. You know, work their way through it, or by other means, because you've combined all three of these very different facets of aviation. Like we said, a military pilot, a commercial jet pilot, and a general aviation pilot with a super decathlon. So uh, let me know about that. Yeah, so one thing that I always tell everybody is never let anybody tell you no, whether it's you know, on the civilian side or the military side or commercial side, you know, it's, you're getting your ratings. You know, first, you dream big, think big, you know, let your imagination go where it will, and then just have a plan to get there. And then along the way, you're gonna encounter hurdles, you'll encounter some hardship, but just don't let anybody tell you no, and you'll be able to, be able to reach your dreams. So basically, think big, dream big, and keep your eye on the rainbow at the end of your dreams. Any further advice for any of those coming up behind you, some of the young people that are just getting started in aviation? Yeah, you know, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of hurdles into flying, whether it's money or time or a commitment, uh, but at the end of the day, the joy and fun of flying uh, outweighs any of the, the hurdles that you have to overcome. So a little perseverance, a little bit of can-do attitude will get you, get you a long way. Excellent advice from Maryland Air National Guard Captain Nick Roxanne, one of the lucky pilots who gets to fly the Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt II, also known as the Warthog. Thank you, Captain Roxanne, for joining us here on uh, AOPA Hangar Talk, and we hope our paths cross again soon in person. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, David, so I know one thing you got to do that you didn't talk about really in the interview is a little bit of simulated dogfighting. How did it go? It was great, Ian. I'm so spoiled now. You know, we talked about talked about the Cessna Aerobat that I fly or the, or the 172s. That A-10 Warthog is a beast. That is one mean machine. I had a great time. Uh, you know, Captain Sand uh, was helping me out and, and also Lieutenant Colonel Palmer. They were excellent. And uh, these folks are, you know, they have their hand in a lot of different flying and they're really uh, folks to look up to and, and aspirations that I would have to, you know, one day follow at least partway in their footsteps. <laughs> okay, great. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Teelis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk on iTunes and on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly.